Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Everybody, we're back with Bitches on Comics. It's me, Sarah Century, and my host. Hi, I'm Essie Fleur. Um, Sarah's my host, and I'm Sarah's host, and that's how we keep the power. It's our checks and balances. You may never have heard of those since we don't have a functioning government, but we have checks and balances here at Bitches on Comics. Ooh, yeah. Too topical? Too topical? That's oh, hilarious. Well. I was just cracking up because I was like, how long is it going to take us to go down the well? And uh, it took us no time. Zero seconds. I was second. like, I see an open door. I'm just busting my head through. We're really excited and weird today because we have the incredible Aiden Thomas joining us. Aiden Thomas is the New York Times bestselling author of Cemetery Boys. Aiden, thank you for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Like, this is going to be fun. This is going to be a good time. Yeah. <laughs> it's also still so weird to hear people be like, oh, New York Times bestselling author Aiden Thomas. Right. I'm like, oh, me? Weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. That is definitely one of my questions. How weird is your life now? But before we get into those fun questions, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's the Rosetta Stone of understanding Aiden Thomas? Oh my gosh. Um, about me. So I'm a trans Latinx non-binary author. I pretty much strictly write young adults because I don't think I'm enough of an adult to write adult books. Uh, <laughs> like maybe one day, but who knows? Um, let's see. I really? live in Portland, but I was born and raised in Oakland, California. So that's kind of still where my heart is. <laughs> and I'm like a plant dad. That's the new title that I've gotten over quarantine. I like obsessively collect plants now. And I think I've only killed one at this point. And honestly, I think that's a pretty good record. That's so incredible. That's like, yeah, that's like what I'm into right now. <laughs> I was so excited just to be like, that's a great record because I too <laughs> am currently being a plant dad. I don't know if it is because of quarantine, but it certainly is a recent development. Sadly, have had, I think, about three go, but. My life needs meaning at this point. So I'm like, plants. The plants need me to be a functional human. So I will yeah. do it for my plants. I'm just going <laughs> to become poison ivy. And um, that's my plan. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I'm definitely Harley. I'm like, should I buy an entire apartment just for cats and dogs? Mm. Yes. Leaning towards yes. Leaning towards <laughs> yes. Yeah, if I wasn't for my little dog. I would not be okay in quarantine. I am so grateful. He'll just like, even today, he could tell I was stressed. <laughs> My partner came in like right before he started recording and was like, oh, I'm just coming to give you a kiss on the forehead. And I was like, get out. I am too stressed out. And then my dog came in and was like, yo, bitch, you need to fucking chill. And I was like, you're right. And you're like, you are right. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a dog and a cat. And yeah, they're definitely the ones getting me through it. The nice thing about dogs is that like, if you're like feeling bummed or stressed out, you can just like make excited noises at them. And then suddenly they're stoked out of their minds. And then you're like, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> it's like a nice little ego boost. 
That's so true. I didn't even realize I was doing that to make myself feel better, and oh, now yeah. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to being a New York Times bestselling author, you are also now my therapist. So congratulations. <laughs> that should work out for all of us. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I just appoint random people my therapist. It's my new thing. <laughs> Great. Amazing. So stoked to have you here. So stoked to talk about your your writing process and your incredible works. And you're such a lovely person. It's so fun to follow you on Twitter. <laughs> what is your handle if people want to follow you? <laughs> okay. So this question always makes me laugh because of the pandemic and everything. I've only ever been to like one convention to like talk about me and my books and stuff like that. And it was before I was published. So I don't even know if it counts. But um <laughs> At one point, at like the end, everyone was like, so where can we find y'all on the internet? Like, what are your handles? And then like, they were just like going down the list and everyone was like, my first name and my last name or like my first initial and my last name. And then it got to me and I was like, uh, yeah, my name's Aiden Thomas and my handle is Aiden Schmaden. Like, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. And everyone started laughing and I'm like, well, nobody told me like when I was getting into this that I should like sound professional or whatever. <laughs> um, so yeah, my handle is Aiden Schmaden <laughs> and that's on uh, Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> that's perfect. I remember once hearing Francesca Lee talk about that and she was like, I made my handle like Cheska Lee and now I have to include my middle name and everything I do for the rest of my life because <laughs> otherwise people won't know who I am. <laughs> and I was like, that's, that's a good point. That's like the day I went and changed my handle from some random shit to like my name. Yeah. <laughs> like, Learn from others' mistakes. So Cemetery Boys is this incredible YA novel about a young gay trans boy named Yadriel and his ghost boyfriend named <laughs> Julian. And it's tight in many ways in terms of plotting and characterization, but it's also expansive. I mean, not just in the sense of painting this picture of many different Latinx cultures living in community together, but also in sort of representing what magic and brujeria in, in particular can mean beyond the bounds of sort of like cishet society. I'm just curious, you know, I've read a little bit about how you came up with the idea and I believe Tumblr played a role, but I was curious if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I was on my Tumblr which I think is also Aiden Schmain, but I'm trying to remember. But I'm not sure. <laughs> and I follow like a bunch of writing prompt blogs. Like what I love so much about Tumblr is that it, it really helps spark a lot of kind of creativity and story ideas for me. So following writing prompt blogs is like a big thing that I do. And it was like in the middle of the night and I was just kind of scrolling through my dash and the prompt that I came upon, it was like, it was super small. It was just a sentence. And it was, what would you do if you summoned a ghost and then you couldn't get rid of it? And I was looking at all the like reblogs and replies and people being like, oh, this is really like scary ghost story and like, oh, it's so spooky and stuff like that. But like, meanwhile, I read that and I was like, yeah, what if I summoned a ghost and I couldn't get rid of him? And what if he was really cute? And so that was like what sparked the basic idea for the story. <laughs> what if he was really cute is the yeah, part that like, so perfect. <laughs> yeah. And then like, you know, forced proximity trope is like built right into it. Right. I knew I wanted my MC to be trans, gay and Latinx. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do that. And we're talking about a ghost. And that just immediately aligns up with my favorite holiday, which is Dia de Muertos. So kind of having those two basic ideas come together and then just the plot just exploded from there. And it was really, really fun. <laughs> 
That's amazing. So you had these like different sources of inspiration. And sometimes when I'm describing really cool, really weird fiction, I describe it like a stew. Like you kind of just kept throwing things in and you knew when to stop. How did you know when to stop? Was there anything you had to go remove? I didn't know when to stop. (laughs) It was really funny because I was like writing this book. And when I sent, I think, the very first draft to my editor and I was like, and here's all these other ideas that I want to incorporate. And I want to talk about this and I want to talk about racism and I want to talk about order and deportation and and homeless kids. And my my poor editor was like, Aiden, I don't know if we have enough room to unpack all of that. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, you know, we, we got to keep it around like, you know, 95,000. <laughs> and so I kept coming up with all these ideas and like scenes and wanting to throw them like into the story because they were like important to me. And uh, it was hard. My editor had to help me be like, okay, look at it and really focus on what's really important to the story and to you that you really want to talk about. Otherwise, it would have ended up being like 600 pages long. Um, (laughs) And that would have been a bit much. (laughs) It's hard to pitch a 600-page book. (laughs) It certainly is. Maybe not so much right now for you, though. I'm like, like, where's your epic fantasy? I'm ready. I I will pick it up whenever you get it out there. Not that I'm giving you an assignment. Do whatever the hell you want, obviously. I'll read whatever. But yeah, you know, I think what's so cool is the complexity. You bring so many issues to the table, but they're brought so organically. When you were talking about homelessness, I thought about Flaka, And, you know, she's this, this side character who's a trans woman and is homeless. And her relationship with Julian is, to me, so much of what makes him such a protector. You know, like mm. he really does see himself as like his job in the world is to like take care of people. And I think that's like part of why it's so scary for him when he realizes he's dead. When I think about Flaka in particular, and I'm thinking about the scene where they go down to underneath the highway where Flaka mm. and Co. are hanging out in tents and, you know, worried about Julian. And I just keep thinking about the way that another queer trans person sees her and how that influences the way the narrative, you as a queer trans person, Yadriella is a queer trans person, <laughs> communicating about who she is and how she is present. And even as she's described as like small, and I don't think you use the term wayfish, but that's the term that comes to mind. You know, she still has so much power. I'd love to hear you talk about how you wrote about characters who are disenfranchised, purposely marginalized, and maligned in our society, but you gave them so much power. There's no coming in and being like, oh, look at the poor homeless kids. Mm. As much as, you know, you do feel like, oh, my God, this is a wrong. There's no pitying. And how did you find that balance of showing like the real pain and lived experiences of these challenges while giving them a source of power that, though, you know, Yadriel has magic, they don't all have magic. How did you balance that? Honestly, it was taking like real life examples and like people that I knew, people that I connected with. The first time I ever like saw another trans person, it was a trans girl. And I was so in awe and kind of amazed by her and being like, how is she not terrified every day of her life? And I think what's really important and why Laka was important for me to have in this book and be that character that Yads first gets to see is that that power doesn't have anything to do with physicality, with how you look or how you act or anything like that, but it's really the bravery behind it. And um, for me, that was the most important thing about writing Cemetery Boys is to really highlight that bravery within our communities and um, how important it can be not only to the individual, but 
to other folks, other closeted folks or folks who are still trying to figure out like their own situation to literally just see someone in front of you that is like you is life changing. And it's also very brave to do for that person. You know, it's hard being a non-passing trans person in the world. It's terrifying and it's dangerous, but it's also doing such important things to other kids who are afraid to be themselves or who think that they're only going to be met with a life of suffering and fear if they decide to, you know, come out or share with others what their identity is. And so when I was writing Cemetery Boys, that was kind of the whole basis for this story is that I wanted to have that representation. I wanted to show what bravery looks like and welcoming people into the space and showing them characters that are like themselves, but that are very powerful and that are doing these really big and important things, even if it's on like a smaller scale, even if it's just Flocka being who she is on the page or something really big, like, yeah, it's doing all of, you know, not no spoilers, but being a very powerful um, brujo and accomplishing other uh, tasks that we won't talk about because I don't want to spoil. But yeah, so for me, it was important to show those characters and show them being powerful and being brave, but most importantly, being loved for exactly who they were. I think that's one of the things that makes it so striking is, you know, the moment in the kitchen where Yads is talking to his grandma mm. and she misgenders him and I believe uses his dead name. And what I love is up to that point, we've seen Yads really striving for acceptance, mm -hmm. really trying to prove he has a right to be there. It's a subtle shift, but he's different from that moment forward in the book. He's like, I don't deserve this and I don't have to be misgendered. What I see so much and what I think makes their love so so beautiful between Yads and, and Julian is how Julian comes in and is like, oh, that's the tip of the iceberg, baby. Like, <laughs> you really think there's never been non-binary or trans brujos? You really think that? You, like, believe these people? And, you know, Yads has this moment <laughs> of, like, I kind of picture him, like, in the Twilight Zone, sort of, like, falling backwards <laughs> through stars, where he's just like, what the fuck? That's a great point. And <laughs> what I see there is the way that when we're isolated, we can know truths in our gut and we might doubt them, but we can know them. But when we come together, we know them from a place of power and of owning it. From then forward, Yads really is like, yeah, no, I have a right to be here. You've been silencing part of us and that's mm. not right. But I love that like he comes to his trans power through his relationship with a cis gay ghost. Like that <laughs> is so cool. It's so fun. And I'm wondering, you know, did you always imagine them as sort of like complementary to each other? And what do you think Yads does for Julian in sort of Julian's understanding of his identity? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And for Julian, when I was like thinking of like, who is this counterpart going to be for Yads going through this journey specifically? And there was a couple of things that I wanted to do with Julian. And um, the first one being that I wanted to subvert people's assumptions of what a forward thinking person looks like. So you have Julian and like, if you saw him like running the block with his friends, you wouldn't look at him and be like, ah, now there's like an upstanding member of the like queer community who understands the nuance of like gender diversity and stuff like that. Um, so I wanted to subvert that to start with. I also wanted to give uh, Yads a, a love interest who he doesn't have to teach how to love him. Julian, as soon as he is told 
that Yaz is a boy. He takes a second to process that and kind of refigure his thought process and then acts accordingly for like the rest of the book. And to kind of have this love interest where you don't have to be like, I'm trans and this is what that means to me. And like, this is how, you know, in order to be with a trans person, you need to understand all these things. He already knew, he already understood. And that's because of Laka and because of his other friends. And um, yeah, I just really wanted the romance between them to be easy. I didn't want it to be this fraught thing. I had no interest in Julian having a crisis over his sexuality because he's gay and yeah, it's as a boy. So there's not an issue. <laughs> like It's just how it is. And so kind of having that character for Yads to kind of see that like, oh, this can be easy. Like my circumstances and even myself at some point, I'm making this difficult or my family is making this difficult for me, but it doesn't have to be difficult. And so I think that that was like the really important part for me when I was kind of building their relationship and deciding what that dynamic was going to look like. I read in an interview where you were talking about vulnerability being the hardest part of writing. And I was just mm. wondering, in Cemetery Boys, what was one of the more vulnerable moments that you had while you were writing? You know, um, like we just talked about a second ago, that moment between Yads and Lita. So um, when his grandmother misgenders him and uses his dead name and his response to that. That was a very vulnerable moment for me because I think a really common thing, especially in my family, is that my family is very accepting and loving. And I've never had issues with my immediate family around my gender or my sexuality. But there are still these slip ups. And it's it can be really difficult because when you're a trans person and you're trying to encourage good behavior, like my own mom, she'll misgender me sometimes and she'll name me sometimes. And it can be really hard to want to correct the behavior or be like, please, like, stop doing that. <laughs> because we know that they're trying and we know that they care and they don't really see how their words like impact us internally. So when I was writing that scene, um, what I really wanted to do was like, yes, have this be a very valid experience on the page for trans readers that they can relate to. But I also wanted it to be a teachable moment for allies to show them that when you do make these slip ups and stuff like that, uh, we might hold ourselves back from responding because we don't want to suddenly like hurt someone's feelings and then be like, OK, well, I'm not even going to try if you're going to get mad at me or whatever. So it's a difficult thing to kind of grapple with to be like, oh, like you're hurting me right now. But also I want to like encourage the good behavior and not like have you suddenly like shut off from me. So that was a really kind of vulnerable and a very real experience that I have myself with not just family, but a lot of people. Yeah, I was going to say, I loved it. I loved that Yads didn't just absorb it. You know, I think yeah. a lot of people really liked Janet from The Good Place, and I get why. But like, I'm not going to fucking smile and <laughs> giggle while I tell you I'm not a girl. Because yeah. I'm actually pretty pissed off that you're doing this. Yeah. What else do you want? I could put my pronouns on my forehead, but you're misgendering <laughs> me without looking at me. So I don't know what to tell you, friends. Yeah. So what I really loved in the work is how much honor there was for rage. Like mm. Yods is allowed to be angry. Julian's allowed to be angry and, and not just allowed to be, but that can be a source of strength and inspiration for them. 
And I'm curious if that comes from that same vulnerable place or, you know, your own experiences around being angry or frustrated, or if you're just, you just, you really get the rage. And I I just want you to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, I think like, absolutely. That's definitely part of it. And I think what's kind of funny is that I feel like trans folks, especially trans mask folks, kind of have this reputation of being like really angry all the time and and like having like a hairpin trigger or whatever. And I think what people don't realize is that it's because of the constant battle to be ourselves and coming up against people dead naming and uh, misgendering. So these tiny microaggressions, I don't think people understand how those build up over time and time again. So when like a trans person lashes out at you, for dead naming or for misgendering them. It's not because you accidentally called them a she in this one moment. It's because they've accidentally been called she for the last two years of their lives on a daily basis. So it's not just that one incidence. It's a buildup of incidences slowly, like wears away at folks. So it's not just this anger that's coming out of nowhere. It's a compilation and a buildup of trauma and anger. And so that response is incredibly valid. So it's not about you. It's about what that person has been going through. And I also think that there's a really teachable moment. Like it's it's humiliating, of course. I understand that to kind of be called out, especially in an aggressive way, but also to be called out really aggressively usually means that you're not going to do that again because you don't want to go through that, that <laughs> feeling or that embarrassment. So... I understand how it can be really terrible to be on the receiving end of it, but I bet money you're not going to slip up as easily next time. Right. I've definitely had these situations where I just think that people are a lot more forgiving even than because I mean, this whole book, the whole point of that scene is you talk about it as a little bit of a teachable moment, a little bit of a venting moment, but like also a teachable moment. And I think that that's usually how it is. Like, I think that people really do extend the hand a lot more (laughs) than like lash out or something like that. Like, I don't think that that happens very often because to me, it's always just like, did they really lash out at you? (laughs) You That's kind of how I usually feel about it. But yeah, to me, I thought that the moment really was good because it, it is so forgiving. You know, it's like, There's so much forgiveness behind it, I feel like. And also, it's not even about that, right? Like, it's about somebody making clear boundaries and defining who they are. Totally. Yeah. That's a great point, Sarah. I like that. Because that's what I was thinking, too. So often, people interpret as aggression as just like a healthy boundary. It's like, oh, no, you can't cross this line. I don't (laughs) care. You know, like people don't know what to do with that shit. We are not raised to be like, I respect your boundaries. <laughs> Doesn't happen enough. So yeah, okay, you're like the first trans author on the New York Times bestseller for a trans book. How weird is that to hear? And is your life weird now? And are you still getting used to being successful? Like, talk to us about the like what's happened to you since Cemetery Boys came out? <laughs> yeah, just to clarify, it's actually a fiction book because we've actually had some really wonderful nonfiction pieces written by some really incredible trans writers on the New York Times bestseller list, which is I knew incredible. I was forgetting something, so thank no, you so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very weird. Not a lot has changed other than I have way too many followers on Twitter. Um, (laughs) because, because we're in a pandemic, like I've spent my entire writing career as an author 
in a pandemic. I haven't been able to go to any events in person. I haven't been able to meet readers, which is kind of the most heartbreaking thing about it for me personally. Like my focus has always and will always be on readers and like connecting with readers. So kind of not having that has been really difficult. And yeah, it's it's weird because like this whole experience exists on my laptop and on my phone (laughs) like in real life like nothing has changed it's just kind of you know this hypothetical (laughs) on the internet ether thing of being like oh you're a new york times bestselling author but right now that doesn't really mean anything because we're all stuck at home (laughs) um so that's been kind of (laughs) weird and i'm really looking forward to eventually being able to like actually go out and like meet people and do signings and stuff like that in the meantime it feels kind of strange to like know that all these really cool things are happening but to not be like seeing it play out in any tangible way it's like schrodinger's success yes like (laughs) it's it's there and it's not there uh well i really want that for you you deserve to feel you know like i know what it meant to me and i'm like a damn adult like i know that so many readers have been so moved by by your work here and i i'm really excited that you'll get to do that you know in theory eventually (laughs) The other day I was reading one of my favorite authors Twitter feeds because I mean I can't believe I have this access to these great minds and they were saying you know people always ask me how they can help out with my books if they've already bought their copy or if they've got one from the library and I say you can rate and review me on Goodreads well guess what folks you can rate and review us too it's really simple if you don't know what to write in a review just write I liked it really that's simple Anything like that, hey, and go do that for your favorite authors. Like, help them out, please. But also do it for us. <laughs> we are just two random-ass queer people trying to make this podcast happen, and we need help finding our audience. So help us out. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So something that I read in one of your interviews that I thought was so cool and so much of what, when Sarah and I think about Decoded Pride, you know, the uh, anthology we publish annually where we Mm. uplift queer voices writing queer stories, queer and trans, queer and trans, is you said, you know, you wrote something that you're not allowed to write, right? Like people were like, hey, nobody wants Latinx books. Nobody wants trans books. Certainly nobody wants gay trans books. And certainly no one wants all those things in a YA. And Mm. you were like, eh. Oh, well, <laughs> still going to write it. And I just, like, that's so magical. This, to me, is is an example of what I, I think is so powerful and inspiring about us trans folks. Like, you can tell us no, and we'll be like, sure, that is how you feel. <laughs> I have a different impression on this. And, you know, like, where did that determination come from? And how does it feel to know that you've written something that you're, quote unquote, not allowed to and you know, successful, at least in theory, again, since you can't feel it. (laughs) Well, what it makes me see is that there's just so much gaslighting within the publishing industry of being like, oh, no one wants this. This doesn't sell, but it doesn't sell because you won't sell it. (laughs) It's like what I've learned from this experience. Yes, yes. But I think what's really funny about this process is that at the beginning, I didn't think I wasn't like, well, I'm going to write this anyways. Like, I'm going to write this book because it's the book I want to write. And so be it. Um, it the process was a little bit more complicated than that, as most things are. Um, but so Cemetery Boys is actually my option book. Um, the first book that I sold to Macmillan and to my editor was Lost in the Neverwoods, which is coming out this March. And uh, Cemetery Boys was the book. They were like, OK, we have gone through copy edits for Lost in the Neverwoods. What do you think about writing next? So I put together a list of pitches for my editor, Holly West, over at Macmillan and Five Will and Friends. And I believe I sent, it was either five or six stories. The first story, I had like 40K written. I had a full outline and a synopsis. The second one, there was like a fully outlined synopsis. And then like they kind of got more vague, <laughs> like as the email <laughs> went on. And Cemetery Boys was the very last idea that I pitched. It was a paragraph long. And most of the sentences ended in question marks because I was like, maybe he's trans and like maybe Latinx and also gay, maybe. <laughs> and... <laughs> and what it was. I love that. Is, <laughs> just question mark. Let's find out. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I mean, maybe. <laughs> like, what do you think? Um, and really, what it was, it was me asking permission to write about a boy who was like myself. I was asking permission to write about my marginalizations and my identity. And I was really afraid that it wasn't marketable and that she was going to say, you know, no, I don't want that. So that's why I kind of kept it like low stakes of being like, oh, this is just really nonchalant and just like maybe it could be this book or whatever. So when I got a response from her very quickly afterwards, like like this is how stressed and nervous I was about sending these pitches. I sent them on a Friday night and I'm on the West Coast and she's on the East Coast. So I was like, there's no way she's going to read this. 
I can just let it sit for the weekend and not have to stress out about it until Monday. But she ended up responding like that same night. It was probably like nine o'clock her time or something. And she was like, yes, like Cemetery Boys. That sounds amazing. Let's do that one. And I was like, really? Like, I was absolutely shocked. And, um, you know, Holly being in the position of power that she is, she gave me that opportunity without having people in the publishing community who are excited and who want to uplift um, our voices or voices of marginalized folks who can't break into it. So I'm really so, so grateful and thankful for Holly to giving me that opportunity. And then once she said, yes, you can do that, I was like, okay, well, then we are going like fully into it. Like, get ready. This is going to be a super queer and trans. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a written manuscript that has not been published. You wrote and published this in between that time? Um, so what was the process? I'm trying to think. So, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so Lost in the Neverwoods went off to copy edits and then they're like, what's the next book you want to write? I was like, I want to write Cemetery Boys. And they were like, okay, cool. And then like, I think it was after I sent them the first draft, they were like, you know, we think that this should be your debut. What do you think? And I was like, I would love for this to be my debut. So then it was this really complicated process. Um, Lost in Everwoods has been sitting around waiting to be published for like two years at this point. And um, for Cemetery Boys, we decided to fast track it since we wanted it to be um, my debut. So I actually had to write the first draft in six weeks. And the process... Holy crap! I know. From the first draft to being sent off to copy edits was a year. We did everything in a year, which was very, very quickly... Yeah, for people who don't know the publishing world, that is, like, unreal. That's, like, yeah. light speed. Wow. Yeah, so first draft to not not copy edits, but actually being published, because we just had this conversation a little while ago. It was exactly a year, within, like, a few days, I think. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was totally a whirlwind situation. And then, so Lost in Neverwoods has just been kind of patiently waiting, and then so finally in March it gets to come out. And then I think the real kicker was that the original um, date that Cemetery Boys was supposed to be published because I wrote it so quickly was June 9th. And then because of the pandemic, it ended up getting bumped back to September 1st. So it was just like, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a what a wild year to debut. Yeah. What a wild year to debut so powerfully, right? I think you debuted as number eight on the New York Times. Yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> it's pretty wild. And are, are you working on your, I think I saw you saying on Twitter, you're working on your third book now. Is that correct? Yeah. The first draft of my third book is due on March 1st. <laughs> so I'm in the throes of writing that right now, which is really exciting and super fun. Um, I'm having a good time with it. But, you know, writing in a pandemic is, is also difficult. <laughs> I also wrote a rom-com, an entire rom-com during the pandemic, which... Um, <laughs> I, I want to edit myself a bit more before I actually send it off to my editor because it's 140,000 words, which is way too long for a young adult rom-com. I was like, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> so I need oh. to uh, edit that a bit. <laughs> so relatable. So relatable. <laughs> you know, I want to come back a little bit to Cemetery Boys because there's two aspects of representation Oh, there's many, many, many that I think are are particularly cool. One, you know, a Latinx trans and gay character. Mm -hmm. And I know that's part of your experience and part of why you brought that to the page. And I also want to hear about, you know, a Latinx gay character with ADHD. 
Oh yeah. It's pretty fucking cool that Julian is is allowed to show up on the page as a person with ADHD. My partner has ADHD and mm. I know that ADHD can create a lot of challenges for people. Actually, you know, it's society that creates the challenges. Oh yeah. People with ADHD are fantastic. If I need an idea for a story, I just <laughs> ask my partner. You know, and I'm like, here's 55 ideas. Okay, I can't use most of these, but this one, this one's gold. <laughs> But, you know, I, I think people really have responded to that. I think that having gayness be like, and, and Latinxness be like the common denominator and then to <laughs> also bring in transness and ADHD is really cool. And and I'm, I'm curious, do you get any pushback where people like this is, they have too much going on? <laughs> Were people supportive? And why did that matter to you? Why did all these layers matter? That they, not that they exist, but that they show up recognizably on the page. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get any pushback. And I think it's because the truth is that folks are layered people. Like there's not just one part about us or our identity, right? We have multiple things going on. And so I think it really just gave him or, you know, both of them a realness to have these like multiple identities and these multiple marginalizations. And for Julian, it was so, so important to me. What I really wanted to do with him was subvert the bad boy trope um because in fantasy so first of all in fantasy i feel like your love interest is going to look and act a certain way like how many fantasy books out there have like the dark and brooding love interest with like the blue eyes and black hair <laughs> <laughs> and so i was like i was like okay well here's julian diaz who has adhd he's latinx he um hates school and he's really goofy and he's loud and he's obnoxious too because i really wanted to have a boy and a love interest who acted like a 16 year old boy that was really important for me and um I also wanted to unpack what we as society, especially in a school setting, determine what a bad boy looks like. And so when Yads is first like knows about Jules or asks uh, Maritza's friends about him, they're like, oh, you know, he's a, he's no good. He's up to trouble. I heard that he's in a gang, you know, blah, blah, blah. All these other terrible generalizations where the truth is, is that he just has a really close, tight knit found family and the bad boy part of him is just that he has ADHD and his brain isn't built for a school structure that he's been forced into. And that's incredibly true for a lot of teenage boys, especially teenage boys of color, especially black boys. I mean, Jules isn't black, but that's a very real experience is that they get labeled as bad boys just because they don't fit into how society wants them to function, especially within a school setting. It's not that he's a bad boy or gets into trouble. It's that he can't sit still and that he doesn't learn by sitting in one place and having someone talk at him for, you know, 45 minutes at a time. It was really important to me to unpack that and to kind of really directly address readers' assumptions and prejudices when they think about what a bad boy looks like uh, when it came to Julian. I really wanted to... Yeah, kind of make people look at those ugly assumptions about themselves and then have to like deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of what makes the work so powerful is is how true it rings and how it makes us question what we think we know. You know, like I, I don't have the evidence front of mind, but I remember thinking like, wow, Julian couldn't have helped Yad save the day if he didn't have ADHD. There's like a moment where he gets distracted at the end. I can't remember what it was, but I remember thinking like, wow. 
Like, how cool to treat ADHD not as a problem that someone's bringing to the table, but also yeah. as a source of value and of strength. And that feels so good to read something like that and just be like, oh, yes, we can love people for who they are. What? Um, I liked that you had a vegan character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am vegan. And I was thinking about it because there's so few representations of a vegan character who's just like, this is just my belief system yeah. and isn't terrible. <laughs> I like, you know, there's always all of these stereotypes around vegans and stuff like that. I mean, that's part of what stands out so much about Cemetery Boys, right? There's just a realness to like all of the characters. It does feel like you drew a lot from the people in your life. So yeah, and I think what's really fun about like Maritza is like how she sticks by her morals. And she's a lot like Yads and that she knows exactly who she is and is going to stand by that. So, you know, when in her Bruhex community, they're like, well, in order to be a practicing Bruha, you have to use blood. She's like, okay, well, then I'm not going to use uh, that magic. I'm just not going to be a healer then because I don't want to use animal blood. And uh, like another like funny part that I really wanted to incorporate is that veganism within the Latinx community, especially when you're trying to explain it to parents or grandparents and uh, they're just, they don't understand. They're like, <laughs> what? I don't, you don't want me? And then like, they'll like be like, here's, here's some food. And you're like, that's chicken. And they're like, yeah, it's <laughs> not me. Like if it's not like a cute animal, like I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> right. Exactly. Or if it's not like a part of like, that's kind of something similar to my family was from like rural Missouri area. So like, like there's a lot of meat industry stuff yeah. there and people would definitely be like, um, well, yeah, we made you some green beans. We cooked it in some yeah. lard. Um, and I'm just like, OK, but if you could. It, OK, so it's a vegetable, but you put it in animal fat. So like I, I don't want to <laughs> eat it. And like you don't want to make people. It's like kind of a weird situation where it's like I never want to shame people for what they eat. I don't care. Yeah. It's not about that. I'm just about what I do. And yeah. so I appreciated having like that kind of reflection a little bit because it was just like, yeah. Yeah, you never see a vegan character who's just like, these are my beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the stereotypes exist for a reason and everything, but there's always that stereotype of the vegan who's just like, oh my God, are you going to eat meat? Like, yeah. people shouldn't eat meat and like all of that. So, yeah, I just appreciated it. I thought it was a fun character. Yeah, I love her. She's definitely one of my favorites. And I also think what's kind of funny about the uh, adults. And like all of the adults in Cemetery Boys, it's like they're trying really hard, but they just don't understand. Nope. <laughs> they don't <Yeah>. get it. <laughs> what really resonated was also the idea that like young people are really feeling these these pressures. Like mm -hmm. truly, I think this book couldn't be an adult novel. It really is, you know, deeply entrenched in you know youth experiences mm. oh god i sound like i'm 90 the youth these days <laughs> with their adhd and their <laughs> veganism which obviously exists in any age my point is i think it's really powerful to have this this truly young narrative looking at young people not as potential adults and potential humans which i think we do in our society in particular in the us mm -hmm. but looking at them as like you know they're people who are disenfranchised, they have less power than adults, you know, and then you add all these multiple marginalizations from there. Yeah. I just thought there was something really wonderful about the way that their youth, even when adults were like, you're too young, you don't get it. They were like, no, I do get it. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, yeah. and that was such a, 
it felt like the community was able to support that tension. And I do think that's how we move forward, you know, within queer communities and trans communities in particular, but but really in any communities, we have to be able to hold these tensions that are generational, that are what have you. But I love that the Bruhex community doesn't like fall apart. You know, yeah. they, they they actually get stronger for the fact that Yads is there and protecting them and helping them, you know, mm-hmm. like, wow, what a great way to like take something that could be divisive and is divisive in various points throughout the book, whether that be veganism or that be, you know, transness or that be queerness or that be having ADHD. And those things all become part of what makes everyone better. And I loved that tension because there's this point where Yads really feels like the world is on his shoulders. And it is to some degree. And he's like, I have to be the one that saves them. Mm -hmm. I have to be it. And what happens, right, is like people rally around him and help him and are like, you're not alone. We're here to be with you. And they, you know, give him that power of support, of loving, understanding. Things that we know trans youth need to be healthy and happy. And it's like, yes, thank you. And then you add really cool brujeria, which like we (laughs) we barely talked about. And I'd love to know how, you know, you put together the the sort of... um, it's syncretic in some ways, the brujeria, and it's deeply Latinx, obviously. And I'm just curious, like, how did you build that magical system? And what do you think is, like, the most important aspect of it? Oh, gosh. Um, I really feel like when I was, like, making this magic system for the book, I, like, I really cheated, honestly, because, um, <laughs> like, what I got to do is, like, I got to pull from my lived experiences especially when it comes to Dia de Muertos and the magic around that event is that I just took our real life practices and beliefs and then I just gave them a very tangible output. And what I mean by that is like, for example, the marigolds and how we believe during Day of the Dead that their smell and their brightness is what leads our loved ones back from the afterlife. And so all I did was I took that and I put it in Cemetery Boys and I made it that they literally guide our loved ones back from the dead. And then, you know, Everyone shows up and we have a party in the cemetery. So, yeah, I really felt like I was cheating. But I think the most important part about the magic system is the deep familial ties and connections to our ancestors, um, which, again, lived experience that's very true to our culture in general. And so I really wanted that to be a very intrinsic and important part um, of how the magic played out. Yeah, I... um... I feel like the reason I read fantasy is because I like magical systems. Yeah. I'm just like, ooh. Like, I never studied chemistry, but I imagine it's like being interested in chemistry. Please forgive me, scientists who are listening. I know that's a ridiculous comparison, but I'm sticking with it. Yeah, and I, I just, I loved the way that, I'm trying not to spoil. That's why I'm like pausing. Yeah, like, it's hard. Mm. Here's what I'll say. I love that when... The Bruhex community, when his family, and when even Yads doubts himself, the magical forces do not. Yes. They know that Yads must be there. The way that's revealed at the end and, and how it, oh, I'm going to cry talking about it. It's so, it's the hug that every trans kid deserves. It's the affirmation that every gay kid deserves, that every Latinx child deserves, that that everyone who is marginalized in this weird society we live in um, deserves, deserves to be told, like, not only are you on mission, but you're on 
you're on mission in a capital M sense, you know, <laughs> like yeah. you belong here using your brujeria. And I just, I think about that a lot. I think about how the magic forces show up and and embrace and affirm Yads. And it actually just makes me love myself a little better. Like I'm like a little nicer to myself about like, you know, what it means to be in this world and trying to do good and, and trying to find ways to fit in, but also finding ways to affirm myself without fitting in. And I don't know, it's just really incredible. I wonder how, like, what impact did it have on you to, to write something so damn affirming for trans people in a world where that's not what we have everywhere? And, and how did it impact your sense of self and, and did it? Yeah, I think for me, that was a really, really important part of writing this book in general. Even at the very beginning in the first chapter, the magic is gender affirming. And even though Yaz has been brought up in this community of Bruhex where it's very gendered, how it's set up, it's because that's how they've been practicing or even misusing it, I would say. And then when he goes and does his own rites of passage ceremony because his community won't do it for him, it, the magic knows and understands who Yads is, that he's a boy, that he should be practicing brujo magic, that he has these capabilities that the other men in the community have. And for me, that was really important because it's the same thing like in our lives and any kind of trans kids lives it's that society doesn't get to decide who you are you know who you are and because of that the magic knows who you are magic doesn't care about what society has to say or what your family says or what kids at school say it doesn't matter because it knows you on the most basic most intimate most personal level possible so that was a really important thing for me to first establish at the very beginning of the story and then to really drive home um, towards the end of it. And that was a really, you know, a personal thing for me as well, because I think a lot of the time um, trans folks, we feel like we have to prove ourselves to everyone else around us. And I really wanted to carve out that space and be like, you don't have to prove it to anybody, including yourself. You can just be who you are. And that's enough. That's the truth. That's who you are. It doesn't matter what society thinks. They don't get to decide who you are. You do. Well, I think I have to go lay on the floor and cry for three hours. Um, I'm very emotional about that message. And I'm like also like, you know, flashing back to reading Cemetery Boys in one marathon sitting. I was just like, I'm going to read a chapter. And I was like, oops, read a book. It's one in the morning. I need to go to bed now. Uh, yeah, I... I feel that in my soul. And as much as this is a YA book, and I think that's an imperative part, again, as I've said about, about the book, I, I think it's a message that all trans people need. Mm. I think there are very few people who are affirmed in their transness by their family and their immediate community if their community is not trans, if their mm -hmm. family is not trans. And I think that the idea that even when you doubt yourself, you're who you need to be, it's so gentle. It's so accepting that you are going to doubt yourself like it's okay yeah. like I, I I think as I found my non-binariness I kind of like made a flag of it and like stuck it in myself because I was like <laughs> I just don't want anyone to like convince me this isn't the truth because 
there is a lot of, especially I think for non-binary people, but for trans folks in general, and I think lots of queer folks, there's a lot of like cajoling and a lot of like, are you sure? Like, what does non-binary <laughs> really mean? And I'm like, I'm not a fucking professor. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I just, there was so much went under the term woman that didn't feel like home. Mm. And, and so much of it felt like a performance of what other people wanted from me. Totally. And that's not to say that I don't perform still non-binariness at different times, but I don't think we know what that means. So it's like, good luck, <laughs> folks. You tell me. What do you think's my non-binary <laughs> thing? I think it's all of me, but you know, whatever. Like, what stereotype <laughs> do I fulfill? <laughs> and there's just so much grace in saying, of course you're going to doubt yourself. Of course you're going to question. Of course you're going to feel like the world doesn't want you to find yourself. Because it doesn't. But we do, right? Like trans adults, we want trans youth to find themselves. Yeah. I'm also looking at people my age going, sound pretty trans to me, friend. Like, I'm excited <laughs> for your journey. Good luck. <laughs> you know, like, I can't wait to see what happens. <laughs> but we can't create enough space for that, I think, at this point, especially in literature, especially in YA literature, for just to say, welcome to the table. You don't have to know what it means that you're trans. You don't have to know what it means that you're non-binary. You don't have to believe yourself at every second of every day because these are made up categories and we get to decide which ones help, which ones harm and how we want to use them. Totally. And that is a lot of power to give back to trans people. Yeah, totally agree. <laughs> that was my mini rant at the end. <laughs> It happens most of the time when I get to talk to an author. I'm like, can I tell you what you're doing that's perfect? Because that's what I'd like to do now. Is that, are you open to that? Um, Sarah, did you have any other questions? I sure do have one last one. And I was just wondering, uh, with Cemetery Boys, was there any lessons that you kind of learned about writing while you were going through that you're going to take forward to your next project? <sighs> Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. That's so <laughs> what she does. <laughs> time I turned in a draft, I was like, you know what? I don't think this book is any good. <laughs> I, was like, I remember I had turned in the first draft, which again, I wrote in six weeks to my editor. And then I went to Seattle to attend a seminar by Maggie Stiefvater, who is one of my favorite uh, authors. Oh, yeah. Yes. She's legit. It was really cool. And it was wonderful. And the thing she said, I was like, it blew my mind. But it also made me be like, oh, no, I, I haven't <laughs> done any of this. And, so very boys. and I was like, oh, no. And so what happened was um, <laughs> when I got back to my Airbnb with my friend, bless her for dealing with me as I spiraled. I think we got home because we like, went to dinner afterwards. And I think we got home at like nine or 10 home by, I mean, the Airbnb. And I sent a frantic email to my agent. And I said, <laughs> my agent is Jennifer Mark-Soloway. And I was like, Jennifer, I just went to some Maggie Waters. A seminar, and she was talking about all these things and emotional truths. And I was like, I don't have any of that in Cemetery Boys. I'm so worried. Should I email Holly? Should I <laughs> take the draft back? And I was just like losing it. And like, bless her, she uh, texted me that night and she was like, Aiden, I just want to remind you that you wrote this book in six weeks. It's not going to have emotional arcs and like all these deep meanings yet because you wrote it <laughs> in six weeks. <laughs> like, that's that what so happens funny. in revisions. Like 
you were just getting this. So we had a vague idea of what the plot's going to look like. She was like, I think you need to take a breather, give yourself some (laughs) grace and trust the process that things are going to get worked out. Her favorite thing to say to me, which she says very often is Aiden, you're worried, but you're well. And, um, and I'm always worried. And it turns out I'm usually (laughs) always well. (laughs) So it was, yeah, self-doubt is like the name of the game. I don't know if you can be a proper author with like a bunch of self-confidence and being like, ah, yes, I just wrote a perfect draft and I'm sure all the feedback I get will just be my editor congratulating me on how brilliant I am. If there's writers out there that exist, I don't I don't know if they're very good writers because I think I was going to say, I can think of, of a list. They are all cishet white men <laughs> and I don't I am, like their books. <laughs> I am 0% surprised. Um, <laughs> so I think that's just kind of part of the process. And I, as, as terrible and awful as it is, I think it's also really good because it forces you and pushes you to do better. And so I think even though I hate it and even though it's a really awful to go through and stressful, it, uh, it makes me a better writer. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I'm an editor as well as a writer. And, and so much of what I try to, you know, share with other writers is like, Writing is rewriting. Yes, I know. It's like blah, blah, blah. We all know that. But do we? But do we? Like (laughs) truly, your first draft is probably going to be some bullshit. There will be exceptions. Some things may come out beautifully. You may be like, this chapter is heaven on earth. You know what? I'm so happy for you. (laughs) You may also find that when you're done with the book, that chapter is garbage. It's okay. (laughs) Writing is like part science, but mostly magic. You know, yeah. and and I think that's a hard thing to instill in people is the faith that like it is the process that makes books wonderful. Absolutely. You know, and it makes them something that I'm I'm not religious, but to me, like books are my faith, you know, like yeah. stories and how we how we connect and how we make meaning. Those are the things that I I draw inspiration from. Totally. Okay, so we know you have other projects coming. Can you tell us anything about them? You know, you've got uh, Lost in Neverwoods. Yeah. Coming out in March. Holy crap. And then you've got like this third secret work in progress that's due (laughs) March 1st. Like, what can you tell us? Yeah. So Lost in Neverwoods um, is really, I'm so excited for it to finally be out in the world. And it's a very dark contemporary reimagining of Peter Pan. It takes place after the original story. And it's about kind of what happens to Wendy after she and her brothers go missing. But six months later, She's the only one who comes back and her brothers haven't come back yet. And so she's just turned 18 and kids in her small town start going missing in the woods. And um, Peter shows up claiming that he knows what happens and how to get her brothers back. And so it kind of um, turns into this really creepy, like very atmospheric fantasy and it's it's really fun, and I'm really excited for that to be out in the world. And then, yeah, I have <laughs> I have a duology coming out that's uh, demigods. So it's kind of I've said Percy Jackson meets the Hunger Games, and uh, that one's been really fun to draft so far. And that's going to be a duology. I'm in. That sounds very great. excited. <laughs> Will there be anything in the future of Cemetery Boys, or do you think that story is complete? I think that there is so much in that world that I would like to explore. I would be really surprised if something else wasn't created, whether it's 
uh, like a spinoff or a sequel or even like a graphic novel. I was going to say a comic book. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to have a graphic novel. That would be like incredible. So I'm already thinking of the creative team. I'm very excited. <laughs> uh, this would be incredible. So I would be very, I would be shocked if something else didn't come about. The only thing is that um, Cemetery Boys was so important and I feel like so happy with it that the story that I come up with needs to be really good. I'm not going to just write something to have more content. If I'm going to create another piece to this story, I want it to be really, really good. (laughs) So cool. So cool. Yeah. I am. I'm very excited for what the future holds for you, Aiden. I am (laughs) confident that you're going to be telling us really good stories for many, many years to come. And I will be there reading them because I like <laughs> them very you. much. Thank you. Uh, I might be, you know, up until one in the morning every time you have a book come out. Let's see. It's a new journey for me. Not really. I've, I was nine in my bed reading, you know, Tolkien being like, wow. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to find you, they can find you on social media at what again? Aiden Schmaden. <laughs> So A-I-D-E-N and then S-C-H-M-A-I-D-E-N. <laughs> we will also tag Aiden when we share this uh, interview and we'll have it in the show notes. So if you're like, I don't know how to smell Schmaden, that's okay. I think it's really funny, but we will have it in our show notes. So go to our website, bitchesoncomics.com and we'll get you hooked up with that. Uh, and then you also have a website. Is that correct? Yeah. Aiden Dash Thomas. A lot easier. <laughs> And you have like, and some really cool stuff about your new book on there, right? Yeah. There's, so there's a bunch of content on there for my upcoming projects and also for Cemetery Boys. Every piece of art that my cover artist, Mars Lauterbaugh, has created for Cemetery Boys is on the website. So you can go there and uh, look at all of them. It's really cool. Cry your eyes out. Yeah. <laughs> Soothe yourself with the love of Yadriel and Julian. <laughs> Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking time for us. We really enjoyed your book. We really enjoyed talking to you. And thank you everyone for listening. We're Bitches on Comics and we hope that you're hanging in there. Bye. 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 podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I am bitch? If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. 
the Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new, or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery, following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world, in which viruses are gods, and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown. <laughs>